Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and joining me as always is... Susan Griffin. Fantastic. So Susan, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we've got on the show this week? Right. Um, So we have Dave McCoggan, um, who is, well, how do you introduce Dave? He's been an advertising planner. He is... um, a, a, a storyteller famed in song and legend how perfect <laughs> is that um, he he he's an Aussie who's lived in Asia for most of his career in advertising he currently describes himself and his company as he he's a bibliosexual which we'll learn more about mm. um, <laughs> and he has some great stories to tell so without further ado Dave, thank you so much for joining Story Conversations today. Uh, this is a this is a, a crazy recording because you're actually in Australia. Simon, as he always is or usually is, is in the UK, and I'm yeah. in New York, and we're all together. And <laughs> wow, um, thank you so much for joining. And we like to start the conversation by asking our guests about their own origin stories. And I did a little sleuthing and we've known each other forever, but I discovered that you have this very long relationship with story. Um, Tell us a little bit about that, that time you spent in Australia for 10 years as a children's book librarian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. After getting a, well, first of all, a, a degree in political science, wow, that's fairy tales <laughs> well, and politicians. Well, while while I was getting my degree, oh, okay. so 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 first of all, thanks Simon, thanks Susan for having me. Uh, you're right, the the storytelling thing goes back a long time. So I was one of those kids who uh, graduated high school. I just turned seventeen when I graduated high school, so I was a year younger than everybody else in my year, my grade. Um, didn't know what I wanted to do, um, was probably a bit immature, to be honest, uh, uh, and um, just decided to skip university and just work a bit and, in typical Aussie male fashion, worry about where I was going to go drinking on Friday night. <laughs> um, and not long after that, after I graduated uni, I got a job in the local public library, in suburban public library here in Sydney, um, and stayed 10 years. Didn't intend to. It was one of those things, oh, I'll do this for a little while. You know, who wants to work in the library? That seems boring. And then 10 years later, I, I was finished. Um, <laughs> and in the course of that 10 years, throughout my uh, late teens, early 20s, I, at night I went off and did a couple of degrees, first in library science and then in political science. But a lot of the time in that 10 years I spent um, in, the, in the children's sections of these public libraries and uh, I was partly the storyteller. So, wow. Susan, you're, you're a mother, so get, kick back, you know, 25 years or so when your daughter was a little girl and you'd take her to the public library and there'd be some, somebody sitting on the floor reading Dr Seuss or something like that, right? right? That was me. Um, and you would do it in, public li- in the library, but you'd also shuffle around to the local elementary schools, um, doing these reading sessions, storytelling sessions, 
just trying to get kids and their mothers interested in coming to the library. So I did a lot of that and that uh, helped me um, obviously feel good about telling stories, uh, but also get interested in the nature of storytelling uh, and the, right. the what effect it has. And even simple, you know, simple things like to this day, when I teach storytelling workshops, I will always tell people, look, you know, we're going to do an exercise. You're all going to sit on the floor. I'm going to bring out a Dr. Seuss book and we're going to take turns reading it to each other. And, and I do that and then I say, any of you that have little kids will know that the toughest audience in the world is, is a bunch <laughs> of four-year-olds, right? Um, read it again. <laughs> read it again. And, 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 of course, the other thing is, is being able to quickly change the nature of things. Right. So, you know, um, and, and Susan's seen me speak at conferences a lot in front of big crowds. But, you know, depending on the crowd, whether it's one person, ten people or a thousand people, but also depending on the culture they come from, from their interest in being there, for why they're listening to you or not listening to you, you have to change your tonality. Sometimes you have to tweak the story. Uh, and change the story a bit to suit the audience as you're in the middle of it. Right? right. So there was all that. And then, as you mentioned, at the same time, uh, at night, I, I, I did this dual degree in uh, uh, library science and then political science. And really the political science saved me because, to be honest, the library science was a little bit dry. Right? Well, do we uh, decimal and the, systems and things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Know. Right, right. You know, how to catalogue things and things like <laughs> Stuff that might seem re- totally redundant today, but actually if you think about it, and a lot of the people that I sort of went through ended up being information scientists right. years later because it's the basic techniques. Mm. But the political science thing was the, the bit that I was really interested in. And, of course... Although you were learning about the theory of the way in which politics works and the practicalities and stuff, I used to volunteer, you know, take up the voluntary subjects that were all about theory and stuff. And, and learning, for example, how to explain, and, uh, you know, how to explain, for example, the difference between socialism and communism, you know, uh, and how to tell the story and to point out that they are very different things. Uh, and that, you know, what's the relationship between fascism and uh, statewide communism, right? And what's the similarities and differences? And, and then telling that to different things. And then in the course of all that, I got interested in speech writing. Mm. Um, and at one point, I had thought to myself, I'm going to go off to Canberra, the Australian capital, and uh, get myself a speechwriter's job. And I thought that would be super glamorous and... Of course, at the time, Watergate happened and all the president's men and all this sort of stuff, and you're sort of thinking, oh, this is, you know, this, is, this politics thing is a great thing. <laughs> and then I did a little practical internship in that and discovered <laughs> it was intensely boring. You know, when, so, when somebody gives you, like, you've got two hours to write a speech about the pricing of apples, mm. you know, right. and it's like, uh, no, no, I don't, I, I'd go crazy doing this. <laughs> um, so I did, I did all of that, uh, and then... Um, in typical Aussie fashion in my late 20s, I spent two years bumming around the world, just backpacking around the world uh, oh. and then fell into a job in advertising. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's, is that after, after that, is that when you joined McCann World Group in the, in yeah. the 80s? And so you were, you were an advertising planner. And I, yeah. For, for my benefit and for our audience, uh, what, it, what is an advertising planner? I've, I've, <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've worked with planners before, but it, it seems like a bit of a but dark he still art needs, to me. he still <laughs> needs an explanation I of got, what an I, advertising planner is. I have to say, is. 
I, I have to say, my, my, bro, my brother, right? So I've, I've worked in advertising now for well over 30 years. And my brother, to this day, every time we see each other, at some point in the first hour, we'll turn around to whoever else in the room is, so Dave, can you explain to <laughs> X, what is it you do? I mean, <laughs> uh, basically what happens, is every, when you say you work in an ad agency, people think that you make TV commercials, mm. right? And they think that you either write them or you're, you, you film them. Um, and you two both know it's, not, it's much more complicated yeah. than that. There's a lot of stuff goes on. But the way I put it is, as a strategy planner in the agency, you're the guy that thinks about what the client wants, thinks about the people that you're trying to reach in the advertising, and fills in the, the writers and, and the, the directors and all the everybody else, the art directors, fills them in on what will be attractive and make a difference to those people mm. about what you're trying to say. So a, a lot of it is understanding people and how they work and how they think and what they want and what they desire and what they hate. And then how does this product or service fit into that life? Yeah. And then write a brief and the other guys go and figure out how to make fancy words around that. So you're the, you're the audience's representative, representative yeah. and the client's representative. So you're kind of a conduit. Yeah, between... to a certain extent. Yeah. To a certain extent, yeah. Um, really the advocate for, for as the way I put it, I'm the advocate for what real people want and mm. think. Um, mm. and, and sometimes having to put that um, clarity around the, and I'll give you a simple example um, I'm known in the industry as being I hate the word consumer mm-hmm. right? I, I, I hate the word consumer because about 20 years ago the word got hijacked by the typical laziness of the industry <laughs> so that you know it, it, people all the time use the word consumer our consumers that, that you know the consumer you know this consumer that consumer and you go no 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 you're talking to people they just happen sometimes to consume the thing you want and your job is to get them to consume it and then once they've consumed it, they're no longer consumers, mm. right? right? So I usually use the example of I have drunk, literally I have drunk Coca-Cola every day for the last 50 years. You know, straight Coke, love it. Am I a co-consumer? No, there's not even any in the room, so I'm, I can't be a co-consumer. I will have at least one later on in the day. I had one last night. <laughs> But I'm not a co-consumer right now. Interesting. Right. And how was the leap between uh, being a librarian reading stories to oh. children and advertising? I mean, I know you have the two years between, so maybe there's a bit of a buffer. But what was that leap like? Yeah. Well, the, the buffer, strangely, was mostly working as a butler in Rome. So that was totally... Oh, that sounds an interesting charts. story. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was an interesting story. But I got back to Australia and um, went back to work in public libraries again. But after a few months, sort of realised a couple of things. First of all, I was coming up for 30 and broke. And being a children's storyteller is sort of fun and goofy and, you know, not a, it's a pure nine-to-five job, no pressure, but not much money. And so uh, you're sort of sitting there going, I've, I've got to find a job that gets me more money. And a mate of mine rang up one day and said, hey, Dave, you're still looking for another job? There's an ad in the paper. And the... The ad literally ran something like, American company with five Australian offices needs somebody to organise their information and think about how Australians think, right? So I rang up, didn't say what the company was on the ad, rang up, the lady that answered the phone is talking to me and after a few minutes she goes, do you know what we do? And I said, I haven't got a clue. 
She goes, well, well, we're an advertising agency. What do you know about advertising? Nothing. Um, and she goes, well, our company's called McCann. And I said, I guess you know nothing about the company. And I said, the only thing I knew, and the good news was, when I'd done my political science degree, my thesis paper had been about um, a very famous political ad campaign in Australia called the It's Time campaign back in 1972. And I'd written this paper that was created, and the ad campaign was created by McCann mm. in Sydney. Oh, wow. And her, forgive, forgive the language, right, but her response literally over the phone was, oh, bullshit. <laughs> and, and I said, no, I did. And she said, well, okay, who wrote that campaign? And I said, it was a guy named Paul Jones. And she goes, where's he? And I said, I've got no idea. I know he worked on that then. And she goes, well, he's our national creative director. Come in next Monday and have a chat to him. And I did. Wow. And we talked about, we talked about politics for an hour, and the next thing I know, they gave me a job. Um, and the job really was initially to take all the information they had and create sort of an in-house library. Um, but very quickly, what they, what they found and I found was most people that work at ad agencies like to take shortcuts. <laughs> so it was pointless me saying, you know, here's a bunch of reports or here's a bunch of magazine articles you could read. What they really wanted was, Dave, can you just tell us what it mm. says? Mm. Um, tell us the story the of habit. what it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I very quickly got in the habit of sitting in people's offices or sitting in front of groups of people and saying, look, you're working on the launch of this new thing. This is what, it, this is what it's all about. And this is what people actually think, mm. right? And everybody would just go, oh, that's great, that'll do. Thanks very much. And nobody would read the stuff, right? Um, and so I got very practised in doing that sort of storytelling. Oh, wow. And then suddenly it was like, don't tell us, go tell the client. Can you stand, you know, come, come with right, us now, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> And it worked out that way. Well, you you know, you mentioned earlier in this conversation that I've seen you present at a number of conferences, and I have, and you are a bloody brilliant storyteller. Um, you, you are exceptional in terms of using story as a mechanism for landing an idea with the audience. And... Um, you know, famously, you've presented stories that range from one that I've seen you present a couple of times called My Mother's Throne Room, and then another that you entitled The History of Men's Underwear. Actually, I've, I've seen you do these presentations using props. Yep. You know, so maybe you could tell our audience a little bit more about those two stories and kind of the, sure. the moral behind the story because your mother's throne room, sure. well, you tell it because yeah. okay. then the props will men. become much more interesting. Sure, sure. I'll start with men's underwear because it, it, it started around the turn of the millennium uh, and uh, I was... Um, asked to uh, talk to a group of people about change and the way in which change works. And it was a particular group of people working in a particular industry. And as I'm sitting there thinking about it, I had been the judge of a student competition here in Australia a few years before. And strangely, the student competition had been about coming up with ad campaigns for underpants, right? <laughs> Um, and it's, it's stuck in my head, some of the things some of these students had said, right? Like, why is it that 
Like if Simon and I and half a dozen of our mates were in a room together and I said, everybody drop your trousers, I can guarantee you that we'd all have different underpants on. Hmm. Now, why is that, right? It doesn't sort of make <laughs> sense, right, in, in, in one point. But what I, so that had stuck me. So what I did was I did a little digging around and I put together this presentation to help this company understand that doesn't matter what category you're in, the interesting thing is that the big changes in a category come from outside. The big changes in any category of product or service are not what's developed in your own lab. It's almost invariably stuff that where somebody in your company or your industry has noticed something going on outside and has adapted it. And so mm. the talk is really based around that principle. And I go off into all sorts of tangents, as Susan knows, and tell a lot of funny stuff. But it's basically about, if you think about that category, how do we get to the fact that half a dozen, and, and usually, Simon, in the, in, when I do that talk, I will drag two or three guys up from the audience, unknowingly, <laughs> right at the beginning. I will basically convince them that we're all going to drop our trousers <laughs> and we stand on stage and, we're all, and, I, and I have a $100 bill in my hand. And I'll say, look, we're going to drop our trousers and I'll guarantee you that there's four of us and we have four different pairs of underpants. And I've never lost the bet. Right. Right? <laughs> and then I go on to explain how have we got to the, this situation mm. where you're wearing pink polka dot underpants, right? And I'm wearing, you know, funny coloured boxer shorts and this guy's wearing black, you know, tidy white, back tidies mm. or something like that. And it, there's three basic technologies in the history uh, over the last little 200 years, 250 years that have led to that, right? right? And three technologies that had nothing to do with underpants except somebody in the underpants world saw that, saw what was going on and grabbed a hold of it. So that that's that story mm. and it's a funny story and it, it, yes, it involves me and I'm, if you go on Google, you'll see lots of pictures of me with my pants around my ankles <laughs> standing on stages all over the world. Right? Claim to fame. So, so, as, so as my wife likes to say, you know, I've managed to, uh, I, I, I've gone from being a children's librarian to dropping my pants on stage. <laughs> now, what does that say about the chances that I am some sort of pedophile? You know, it's like, um, oh at any rate, um, so I do that one. And, and then, of course, what happens is that depending on the audience, then from that, I turn that into a twist and say, now think about your own industry and how things from outside have affected that, right? And why it is that you should be doing, spending more time looking outside than inside if you want to get real innovation. So I did that famously at one point. I've done it all over the world in lots of places, lots of organisations. But I did it at a conference that, um, for a group called SMR, which is the Global Market Research Industry, at a conference in the States. And it went down pretty well, big audience, da-da-da. And then they rang me back up about a year later and said, look, we've got another conference coming up. You were really funny. People really liked it. What else have you got? And so I'm sitting there going, oh, what else have I got? What else have I got? And at the time, I was heavily involved uh, and this is about eight, nine years ago, uh, and I was really involved with a lot of clients trying to come to grips with this thing about called social media, right? And what? And if you think back, if you're in the marketing advertising industry, eight or nine years ago, it was like, what the hell is this thing? You know, is this going to be important, whatever? So I started thinking about social media. And one of the things that came to mind very early on is that social media has nothing to do with mobile phones. It's got nothing to do with computers. Social media is as old as mankind. Mm. The oldest social media we know of is those cave paintings in the south of France and, and northern Spain, right? Because if you think about it, all they were were 
social mediums which over thousands of years people came along and posted messages on and reacted to other people's mm. messages, right? It was like, here's the hunting tips I've got for you and somebody comes along and, and then repaints something else, so, you know, oh, no, no, use this spear or whatever it is, right? As I thought about that, um, uh, I was thinking about, okay, how do I bring alive the message that social media is more complicated than we think because we tend to get carried away with just Facebook. And that when we think about as a business people, it's not all about just using Facebook or, or Twitter. You've got to think about what are the social media that really matters to people. Hmm. And then I got thinking about this and I ended up landing on toilets. Um, <laughs> and, and, the reason, and the reason was because a few years before um, in Thailand, I had been doing a project for a, a company called Singer. Now, you might remember Singer as a, as a, uh, a sewing machine, machine maker. Yeah, yeah. Right, but famously in Southeast Asia, they are famous as they made all white goods and a lot of brown goods as well. So refrigerators, air conditioners, all sorts of stuff, right? And we were working for them, trying to come up with a new campaign. We'd done a whole lot of um, uh, different types of research. And one piece of research we did was we, we visited a whole bunch of women who were the mothers of young families living in Bangkok who had moved from the, from the countryside to urban Bangkok in the previous five years. So they were typically coming from small villages up, up in the country to come in the big city. And maybe it was the first time that anybody in their family, their, them, the husband, their little kids had ever moved to the big city, right? And we, were, we did this exercise where we gave them all those little old throwaway cameras. You remember mm. those little 24-shot 20, throwaway cameras? And we said, look, we're going to leave this with you tonight. We'll kick it, pick it up in the morning. What's, take a photos of the things you will miss the most if everything about your home was, was destroyed and disappeared overnight. So naturally, first of all, they all took photos of their kids. Not one ever took a photo of their husband. <laughs> that was the weird, first weird thing, right? Yeah. yeah. The second thing was they took photos of a wide range of things. I mean, some people took things of like trinkets, memorable mm. trinkets, like maybe the one piece of jewellery they had or a favourite uh, piece of clothing or maybe it was their, their kid's favourite toy. Um, but what was really interesting was we did this with 100 women and we took all these photos, like 2,000-plus two, photos, and pasted them up on a wall. I just looked for commonalities, you know, semiotics, looking for commonalities. And one of the things we noticed was, the strange thing was, that when we went back and asked them, every woman that had an inside toilet took a photo of that toilet, every single one. And it reminded me of something. So I grew up, I was born and raised on the very, very outskirts of Sydney until I was eight years of age, uh, in a semi-rural, literally I had to walk across a wheat field from our house to the, to the school. And then at eight, we moved. Um, into a bit more upmarket suburb, more in, in towards the city. And the first day we're there, I'm eight, my brother's five, and my, our mother, my mother was a tough lady. She was a sergeant in the British Army during World War II. She was tough, right? We'd never seen her cry before. And that first day, she's crying. It, in this new house, she's crying. We sure thought she was unhappy like we were because we were moving 25 kilometres from our friends, you know, that we'll never see them again, da-da-da. No, she was crying in happiness because in her whole life, she was a Londoner, her father was a journalist, she'd been born and raised in London, migrated to Australia, 
She was an accountant by training herself. She'd never lived in a house with an indoor toilet before. Oh, wow. And and she explained to me years later, the reason why she was so happy was because having an indoor toilet meant that she lived in a middle-class suburb, and that meant that her boys would be middle-class boys. So when I then saw this this tie example, what it made me think about was that there was one technology that defines being middle class in most of the world. Now, in London or New York, you probably take this for granted now. And I, I don't know, maybe you've both grown up and lived your whole lives in houses with indoor, indoor plumbing. But what I found, and as I repeated that exercise in cities all over, major cities all over Southeast Asia and China, was that the toilet is the defining technology mm. of being middle class. Mm. Because as one lady said, up in my village, Everybody has a mobile phone, right? My cousins, as long as they can steal electricity, they can put a refrigerator into their huts. But you, unless you live in the right place, you don't have the plumbing to have a, a toilet. Wow. And so my mum's throne room is really about, when we think about social media, what are the mediums that actually define our social status? And what are the mediums that make a difference in helping us understand socially where we are in the world Fantastic. and and you know that's the sort of story i tell in and know. and yeah i mentioned the fact that i've seen and I, and I did and i did the first time i did that speech at a big conference i did it sitting i did the whole speech sitting on a toilet <laughs> on stage yes. that was the prop <laughs> i was referring to and it was just yeah, yeah. amazing oh so I mean, and by the way, Susan, you would be amazed the number of people that came up afterwards. And remember, we just got somebody kindly arranged to get a toilet, plop it on the stage at a big conference hall. The number of people afterwards that came up and said to me, how come you didn't flush it? <laughs> no, it was connected to it. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. So you, you're, you're telling these stories all around the world and doing this work around the world. So you've been, you know, you were working with McCann for like 28 years. Uh, how does yeah. that... How do stories change in your experience from from region to region? You sort of alluded to it earlier that you have to sometimes change yeah. mid story. Sure. Um, ha- tell us a little bit about that. How they how you find changes well, stories change. Sure. Well, uh, there's obviously things like there's social situation, right? So part of it's cultural. Uh, obviously, there's some sensitivities. Mm-hmm. The first time that I ever told the uh, the underpants story in uh, in a Muslim country was in Pakistan, in Karachi, about 20 years ago. And I literally, it was a, it, to an audience of, a, it was going to be a thousand men, okay, uh, because the nature of Pakistan at the time, there were no women working in senior positions in marketing, and this was a big marketing industry conference. But even though it was a, 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 an audience of a thousand men, I was a bit nervous, and I'd been invited. Uh, the, the, a guy I knew in Pakistan had invited me to do this. He'd seen it done before somewhere else. He thought this was going to be really good, but I insisted. We ha- we went and got a letter from the general of police for the city of Karachi, <laughs> giving me permission to do this because right. I just I didn't want to be half. I didn't want to be on stage with my pants around my ankles and, and you know stormtroopers arresting me and hauling yeah. me away to a jail in Karachi, right? So. So you've got to be sensitive about the culture, but you've also got to be sensitive about what people know mm. uh, and the way they see the world. A, a simple example, um, here in Australia, Simon might know who Shane Warne is. Yeah. Um, I know Susan wouldn't have a clue, right? Uh, Shane Warne arguably was the greatest 
cricketer of the last 50 years in the world, right? A bowler. He died a couple of weeks ago at 52, relatively Ooh. young. Yeah. He was a legend in Australia. Um, and so naturally what we saw was that everybody in the following few weeks, no matter what you were talking about, you'd use Shane Warne analogies, mm. right, uh, especially here in Australia. But what, I had to point out something interesting. My son, who's sitting on the other side of this room, um, my son's 25, right? But my son grew up, he was born in Bangkok, grew up mostly in Japan, um, went to school throughout his life in Japan and a little bit in Hong Kong, and only lived in Australia once he came down here to go to university. So Shane Warne dies, very fa- one of the most famous Australians on the planet, dies. And that night, we're sitting around with him and my daughter, my wife, the four of us are sitting around having dinner, start talking about Shane Warne and he's just eating away totally blank. And so after all, mate, do you know who Shane Warne is? Wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> Wouldn't have a clue. Brought up his picture on the phone, showed it to him, wouldn't have a clue. No recognition. He has no interest, no knowledge of cricket whatsoever. But if I said to him, oh, let's talk about the fact that Hackerhole retired recently, he'd go off and talk forever. Right. And you're both going, who the hell is yeah. Hackerhole? Well, Hackerhole is the greatest ever sumo wrestler ah. who just recently retired. It's, it- okay? So you have to think about... You know, in Japan, you do baseball analogies because everybody loves baseball yeah. and gets baseball. Sumo analogies, maybe golf analogies, right? Maybe, maybe football analogies. But if you start talking about cricket or, or rugby union, mm. most people just blame well, It's interesting because I, I have no interest in cricket whatsoever. The only reason I know who Shane Warne is or was is because of Kath and Kim. Because he was, he was using... Yeah. <laughs> which, again, is, yeah, an, is another cultural... Kevin. Content. So it's, right, so, what right. it's, so it's about... Um, I'll just go in the other room yeah, yeah, with you guys it's, talk. It's, yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about context, isn't it? It's, it's so yes. the, right. the, the shape yeah. of the right. story may be the same, but it's actually about those, those cultural contexts and details. It's cultural context. It's, it's timing. It's mm. history. You know, I was fortunate when I, when I first... A lot of the time I spent with McCann, fortunately they, they transferred me to Asia for two years mm. and I stayed... Officially, I still live in Asia 25 years later. Um, and, and fortunately, in high school, I'd studied Asian history. Right. So years later, when I, when I moved to Tokyo, people were actually amazed that I knew something about 19th century Japanese mm-hmm. history. Like, how, how does this, how does the gaijin know this, right? Um, you know, I've always been interested in comparative religion. That helps, obviously, if, when you're working across Asia. And no, just, look, don't, I'm no expert, but... I, I know a few of the basic tenets of the differences between Islam, Buddhism, Hindu, Hinduism, things like that, right? Um, and so just having those sorts of tweaks sometimes. Um, but it's also a case of um, understanding what's important to different yeah, types of people. that's a really good point. Yeah. And what I found interesting is that no matter what you mean by storytelling, um, it, it sometimes amazes me people who don't ask the question about who's the audience, mm. <laughs> who's going to be in the audience. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in business terms, you know, you've got to ask, like, do they all come from the same industry? Yeah. Do they all come from the same background? Um, you know, uh, if you're asked to talk to a bunch of guys that work in the technical side of an industry, it's different from talking to the guys in the marketing yeah. side, right? Um, and you guys know this. Probably all your audience knows this, but it's amazing how many people 
I have to be told that. We're not entirely sure that all of our audience knows this. No, no, I don't. I, oh, well. no, no, I don't think so. I think, it's, I think in my experience, I have to have that conversation every yeah. single time. I speak to it to a in, with a with an organization about who is the audience and when I'm sort of helping people with pitching presenting storytelling that's a fundamental thing to talk about who who, who are you speaking to who's the who's going to receive this but then we also talk about what are they going to do with it who is their audience how is that going to translate because yeah. again that's a different thing fascinating right. I, yeah I mean what, one of the simple things um, that I point out to people is when you think about the audience that you're talking to, sometimes you have to reframe the story about uh, what I call inclusivity versus exclusivity. Mm. That if you think about, I mean, put it in the case of brands, right? Every, every famous brand you can think of is either by the way it talks, inclusive or exclusive. Mm. Uh, think about Coke versus Pepsi. Coca-Cola is always about it's magic for everybody. You know, we love the world, that sort of messaging. Pepsi, for over 50 years, has been about, you belong to a special generation. We're the the drink for you. Now, it's self-defining who belongs in that generation, but it's it's you versus we, right? And sometimes that's the simplest thing that I think, you know, when when you're talking to an audience, what's their attitude? Mm. Is it all about we want to do something for the world or we want to be a big collective group or is a group, is it a two people or a thousand people in there that want to be talked about as you? It's, it's all about you, right? right. I mean, famously, sometimes when I do workshops, I'll show the difference between clips of Obama speaking versus Trump speaking, right? Um, and, and, and the key thing easy, is easy, the amount easy. of times... <laughs> No, but if you think about it, the basic set, the basic lesson from that is forget the politics that whatever you think of the two guys is one uses we all the time, one uses you all the time, right? Um, so it's that it's that different way wow. of messaging yeah. the thing, right? Yeah, you know, I, I can't help but think about. I mean, I mean, if I if I think about all the knowledge you've amassed, you know, whether it's political science or comparative religion oh you, you know you, you, dave is making the small small <laughs> signal here with his sorry sorry if my if my wife was here you know susan she'd be interrupted right now and he knows he knows nothing <laughs> but it's you know it's it's all this knowledge you know i won't say it's data but one of the other things you've been doing for the last six years is um working with a market research I'll call it a collective. It's it's like a virtual yeah. agency, and yeah. if I understand it correctly, their value proposition is that they are using advanced AI and machine learning to understand narratives on the internet and how those narratives are driving brands. So yeah. AI and machine learning is sifting through everything on the internet to develop yeah. to surface narratives. How does that work? Well, the particular platform that I that I work with sometimes um, it's called Significant Systems. I'll do a little plug, um, and and what that does is let's say that you want to understand the narrative around Dave McCocken. Okay, so you you tell the machine which geography, which country 
or globally. So you could do it either just in Australia or you could do it in the UK or you could do it globally and then you tell it which, which language you want to look in. So obviously globally, probably English, right? And what it does is it then goes and finds every piece of content on the internet that mentions Dave McCoffin. It reads it and analyzes it. And it looks for what is the strength of that content, uh, how differentiating that content is, what are the emotions that are created by that content, um, and then it plots it on different, different graphs so that you can actually see that, for example, you know, the narrative around Dave McCocken is um, either what they call transformative or timeless or it's transitory, something like that. Uh, it's a Boston consulting grid type model that they use that has these four sections. They'll tell you which one, so, you know, I'm not going to tell you which one I fall into. Um, and, and, but then it'll tell you the strength of the affinity that, that, that all that content has and then it'll tell you which emotions the content about me generates, um, those sorts of things. And when you do that for uh, comparing brands or comparing attributes of a category or comparing attributes of a brand, um, it, it, it plots all those things. So you can actually see which of the, for example, uh, if, if I, a project I did recently, we took a brand, we took about 50 different attributes that you could assign to that brand, we plotted it out and we could see which ones were re really transformative. In, in other words, the, the things that the client should focus on because that could change the perception of the brand mm -hmm. versus the great bulk, which are, are you know, are, are not. And, and, you know, you might think they're important. You as the client might think they're important, but actually they're doing nothing for the brand. They're just, they're just stuff that's there, right? Um, and so it helps you sort of do those mm -hmm. things. But it's all about looking at the content of the internet on scale and being able to understand it easily. Fascinating. Mm. And, and perhaps getting brands to see the stories that the internet is telling about them in different ways. Yeah. I mean, the, the great strength of it for me is, but, you know, I use it because a lot of the time I get asked by clients, look, uh, and the last year's is a classic example. You know, uh, one group I did a project for was the the group that looks after the convention business in Thailand. So it brings together, it's like the industry body for the convention business. Now, you may not know this, but but Thailand was one of the convention hubs of the world pre-COVID. Oh, yeah. And, of course, you could imagine that business has basically collapsed, yeah. right? I mean, for two, two years, nobody flew internationally to go to conferences. Um, and so that body got us to look at what were the strengths of uh, and attributes around Thailand and its three key, four key competitors traditionally to see which ones were holding up and which were the strengths and the attributes that they ought to invest in as the industry starts to come back. Oh. And it allowed us to sort of say, look, you're not going to beat Singapore on this, but you could, but by focusing on this, you know, we can build more of a story around why Thailand would be the place to go back to for conventions because of this, not, not, right. not that. And it winds up being evidence-based as opposed to just somebody's, you know, finger in the yeah, wind. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the principle behind that sort of, and look, there's, there's a number of those sorts of technologies around, but the principle behind them is that you're using the, the internet as a proxy for human knowledge, right? right? And, 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 you know, everything that sort of everybody, everything everybody's interacting with. Now, now, again, if I go back to my understand your audience, 
as I have to keep on pointing out to people, let's not forget that something like a good third of the world has no access to the internet, mm. right? So you're not reaching... You, 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 when we're doing that research, we're basically talking about the broad, broad, broad middle class of the mm. world that we can understand what they think, okay? But, you know, by that 30... The numbers vary, 35 to 40% of the world that doesn't have access to the internet, that's, yes, some of it's little tiny kids, very little kids these days, some of it's very, very old people, maybe, although I argue that one. A lot of it is just because there are certain parts of the world where we don't have access or people, the majority of people don't have access to the internet for financial reasons, mm. more, often more than technological. That's sure. right? fascinating. Um, so you have to understand. So, if, so, for example, I also work with the World Toilet Organization, which is a real thing. It's based in Singapore. It's, it's the other WTO. Of course you do. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a foundation set up by a very, very interesting uh, guy named Jack Sim. And it works with governments around the world on trying to get public toilets made um, oh. in, in small villages in India, back, back, back of China, all sorts of places, right? Um, but that, because I do that, that helps me come, go back to my toilet story, it becomes me aware, really aware of the technological differences that we really have, mm. right? You know, we sit here in Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Sydney, New York, London, three of the big advanced Western cities in the world, and we go, everybody has toilets. Everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody has the internet. And how many times have you two sat in meetings where a client, where somebody will say, well, everybody has this. Yeah. Everybody does that. And my, I straight away drop in as like, yeah, who's that everybody? Yeah. Right? I'll guarantee you there's, there's nothing in the world that, ev that applies to everybody, right? Except, <laughs> and by the way, death does, but taxes don't <laughs> because... Well, yes. <laughs> now, now we're getting back to politicians. So, uh, but. In addition to, you know, all this work you do you, you obviously public speaking you're writing you're consulting i don't know if i've got this right but do you do a lot of that stuff under this brand character you call yourself a bibliosexual what could you could you explain what that is to to, to us okay all right well when i left when i left uh, the big agency world uh back in 2015 uh and i just I had to register a company because people were asking me to do stuff and I had to register a company somewhere to get the money, mm. the flow going. So I registered a company in Hong Kong and I used the name Bibliosexual. Now, the first thing is, naturally the question comes back is, is that a porn site? <laughs> no, it's got nothing. Uh, it actually goes back to many, many, many years ago, sitting in a little public library in the back blocks of Sydney, spending dull hours reading random books mm. I was reading a book and there was a character who was described as a bibliosexual and I had to go look it up, right? Now, it turned out a bibliosexual in that true sense is somebody who is, has a sexual fetish where they are sexually stimulated by the smell and touch of books. Oh, that's so what literally, that is. Now I know. <laughs> right? Now I know right? it is. Oh. Now, weirdly, weirdly, at a, at <laughs> around that same time, I encountered one. Imagine... You're working in a, in a library and you're walking to one of the back stacks and there's a guy who is standing there, his arms out like this, straight out, 
but he's standing there with his pants around his ankles, he's got an erection, and he's ejaculating without touching himself. Into a book? Okay. No, he Sniff, just, the smell, the, sniff, of, the smell of the books, Lord. the smell of the books have turned him on that much, right? So this stuck with me in my head, and, and you've probably figured out that I take weird little facts and then twist and right, twist and right. twist. So over the years, what I started to do was, I was thinking about the fact that we're all, all of us have these weird attachments to particular mediums, mm. right? And the example I always give is, if Susan writes an article about X, and Susan puts it in, what's the trashiest paper in New York? Oh, the New York Post. The Post, Post, yeah. yeah. The Post, <laughs> the right? Post. So you, you write a thousand word article about doesn't matter and you put it in the post and then, but it's also printed in The Economist. Now, if Simon reads it in The Economist, he'll go, oh, that Susan's mm. a pretty smart lady. If he reads it in The Post, he'll go, she's an idiot. <laughs> it's same article, right? Just because it's in those yeah. two publications. So what I use this is, again, this is one of the stories I tell about the fact that all of us, all of us have attractions and loyalty to particular mediums that and it's not necessarily rational yeah and that as a marketer what you have to do is to figure out what is the medium that your audience is really attracted to and has a loyalty to mm -hmm. and it doesn't make me make rational sense to use that medium or to or for or for you to think that medium makes sense at all it's what matters to them and so that's why I use the term bibliosexual now in that's talking to fantastic. clients, et cetera. Well, um, Dave, uh, we could honestly keep this conversation going for a very long time, even though Simon's... I was going to say, you might. It's 11 o'clock here. Yeah. <laughs> it's two hours past my bedtime. Right? <laughs> there you go. But, um, and, I, and, I, and I haven't had breakfast yet. Oh, no. So, you know, it's no. Right. no. Um, so... We always like to end story conversations by asking our guests if you have a favorite story. And you've already told us yeah. <laughs> the origin story of bibliosexual. So I, I don't know where this one's going to go, but do you have a favorite story? Yeah, I do actually, because the, the weird thing is, Susan, that over my whole career in, in, in the advertising business, I've ended up working a lot on oral care on toothbrushes and toothpaste brands. Now it's weird for two reasons. One is I've got the worst teeth in the world. Nearly all of my teeth are either false teeth now or, or cavity ridden, plugged up and a mess, right? But I've spent a lot of the last 30 years talking about brushing your teeth. And one of the things that um, I now do uh, is I, I run workshops that I call Brushing Your Way to Insights. And, and I'll use that, that toothpaste, to, uh, toothbrush category to illustrate how you get to an insight about something. But I do this exercise uh, where, again, depending on the size of the audience, sometimes it's everybody in the audience is given a, a toothbrush and, we, and some paste and we get everybody to brush their teeth at the same time. Sometimes I just pull three or four people up on stage and we do it. <laughs> With or without but, their pants. <laughs> no, well, op optional. It's up to you, Susan, whatever turns you on. Uh, but if, if that's how you brush your teeth, pantsless, okay bring, by me. Bring your book. Uh, yeah. yeah. But, the, but here's the thing. But here's the thing. 
uh, how, when you brush your teeth, how long are you supposed to brush your teeth for? Three minutes. Thank you, Simon. Well done. Well, I only know that because I've, I've got an electric toothbrush and it times it for three minutes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one of the big big breakthroughs about 20 years ago when people started to buy electric toothbrushes and the three-minute thing was yeah. put in there, right, with the little vibrator thing that buzz, buzz, buzzes at the end of the yeah. three minutes. But the thing is that if you stand on stage or you get a bunch of people to stand up and brush their teeth and you say, okay, now, I want you all to start brushing when I say go... And don't stop until I say stop. And in the middle of, and they do it for three minutes. And while they're doing it for that three minutes, I explain to them um, why they brush their teeth. Okay. And why it is that we brush our teeth in a certain way. So for example, I don't know if you know this, but there are three different styles of brushing your teeth, right? So there's, <laughs> there's the... There's the round one, you know, where you're sort of taught mm-hmm. to brush it around and around. Well, we call that the American style, okay? <laughs> There's the Japanese style, which is when you take the brush and hold it vertically and brush one tooth at a time, okay? That's why if you go to Japan, you'll see the, that the heads are very small oh. on the brushes because they just do one tooth at a time. And then there's the German style, and it's got nothing to do with Germany. Somebody just made this up. But that's where people are just rubbing really hard up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? Um, So I explain bits about this, but the point is this. You might know it's three minutes, and because your electric brush does it for three minutes, maybe you've got used to it. But when you stand people, three minutes seems like three hours, right? And one of the lessons that I get people to take from that is that it doesn't matter what business you're in, um, when you give instructions to people, first of all, have you ever tried it yourself, okay? And secondly, have you ever got a mass audience to do it and look at the pain as they go through the process, (laughs) right? Mm. Um, Because usually what you're going to find is that no matter what, when you develop a product or a service, you think it's the coolest thing on earth. Mm. But unless you really do those real practical exercises, you can't see, oh, man, you're asking me to do a lot, you know, like three whole minutes of just this brushing <laughs> thing. My, you know, my wrist is getting sore, my mouth is getting numb, you know. Uh, I think I'm wearing off the varnish off my teeth. It's terrible, you know. So I always think that the toothbrush is broken, that it, it's not going to switch off. It's not going to switch off, and then it switches off. So you, ne- you never get used yeah. to the three minutes. Yeah, exactly. Oh, great, great story. Great story. Well, um, look, Dave, I personally can't thank you enough. This has been a dream since we started um, the podcast. And you've been so um, generous with your praise of, of what we've been doing. So to have you on Story Conversations yeah. is really, we can't thank you enough. No, I love, I, I love the series. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, so thank thanks you. for inviting me. Oh, thank great. You. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> and well, entertaining. Entertaining, I oh think, is the word. Oh, my God, yes. Um, <laughs> what a great And, guy. you know, it, had, it was a dream for me to have Dave mm. on the podcast because I have seen him tell stories. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it, this, this was great. And I think a, a main takeaway for me was when he was talking early on about how he learned from reading stories to kids. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting that he talked about the notion of 
you need to change the nature of the storytelling mm. depending on the, the audience, you know. And first he talked about size, like one-to-one storytelling, you know, a group of 10 mm-hmm. story audience members, a thousand. But he also talked about, you know, understanding what, where it's happening, what's happening, the cultural context, regional context, which, you know, context, we can talk more about that. But he also talked about sometimes even needing to tweak the story itself. Yeah. Yeah. The, the notion that brands need to stay true to the story, but, evolve it depending yeah. on the audience I Whatever, found to yeah. be really compelling and appropriate. And- of course. I think um, for me, the biggest takeaway was his use of allegory, metaphor, analogy. He's the master oh of it, oh, clearly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got the, you know, the underpants, the, the toilet method, metaphor, all these wonderful things that are you know, sort of a, a little left field. They take audiences by surprise, but they work. Um, I'm a big fan of of metaphor myself as well, and, and I, I know as as are you, Susan. And I think it's just so important how you can. I, <laughs> I think it's so important how you use that to help people understand complex right. situations, and brands can really um, lean in to get their audiences to lean in through um, an allegory, or the appropriate allegory or metaphor. But, but I think. But he started. You, he always started with this concept and worked backwards you know the notion sure. of how does change happen mm-hmm. well you could say well change happens this way and you know <sighs> snooze, yeah yeah the audience goes to sleep <laughs> um how do i understand social media you know and he he understands it and then draws it back into this metaphor of toilets as a proxy for <laughs> the middle class Sure. Understanding the middle class. So you've got to really be able to look at the question and pick the right metaphor. Absolutely. It's got to be relevant to the audience. It's got to connect connect to the audience. It's got to be relevant to them. And what it can't be is a trope or a a trite metaphor because we're so so used to those... (gasps) You know, as, uh, as I think we've we've often discussed, you know, if you hear a sports metaphor for teams one more time, I'm going to, yeah. you know, it's just, we, we, yeah. we know it, it's done. It becomes saturated. It becomes beige, as it were. <laughs> yeah, uh, team teamwork makes the dream work, if I hear uh, that one more time. <laughs> um, yeah, so relevant. I think I've, you've used the term original. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a, a metaphor, it, it's difficult to be original, let's be honest, but it has to be, have at least an, an, an element of originality and a element of, of uniqueness or surprise about it. There's something different right. about it. Different, right. that's a good word. That's a great word. Getting people to lean in and say, huh, mm. wow, how, how does this relate? And then Absolutely. finding out. Um, well, the other thing that I think, relates to all of these that the these takeaways is you know that notion of who is your audience who is your customer um and it was funny to me that he said you know your audience probably understands this and we said well maybe not do we understand it (laughs) well that's true too um 
But, you know, the best client stories somehow skip this step so often. They, you know, who is your audience? Well, it's so obvious. And then we've seen clients get it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and, and it kind of relates back to the whole allegory metaphor discussion. Um, if you understand who your audience is, then you've got a better shot at figuring out what metaphor is going to land. And I thought it was really fascinating listening to the examples of the sumo wrestler and the cricket player. I still, yeah, <laughs> I, I still don't understand those, but um, it's the notion that in Japan references to golf can work, but you, mm. I mean, you, even if it's just within the context of users versus decision makers, sure, you, you know, of a product or service, you have to understand who your audience is for the story. And I, I think he didn't mention this specifically, but it's something I think you and I have talked about many times, is that audience has to be specific. Mm-hmm. Don't try and make make that audience or that you know segment persona too generic, or otherwise you'll reach no one. Um, I was discussing this the other day. There's a wonderful um, TV program here in the UK called De- uh, The Design Masters Challenge, I think it's called. And there was a recent... Uh, um, uh, candidate or uh, person on that show called Banjo, who is also Australian, funnily enough. And in every single design challenge, he named the client he was designing for. He gave them an identity, a backstory. Everything was really, really specific. And it didn't matter that that wasn't the actual client that the product that they ended up building for. It was the, the specificity, there's that word again, right. that, that he got to. Uh, <laughs> well, what episode should people listen to <laughs> yeah, to, to, to understand, understand. <laughs> the reference to specificity? Okay. But I can't say that word. Um, yeah. But the very fact that he just, um, he just chose a person, gave them a backstory, gave them an identity, gave them a name, and created the story for a one person made all the difference because right. his designs were always amazing. So it's the, right. it's a similar thing. You have to be specific. Wow. Another, yeah. Another story conversation. Indeed, um, indeed. So um, the episode, as always, is produced by uh, Griffin and Skakes Collaborative and Iambic Creative, which is myself, Simon Arrowsmith, and my partner, John Arrowsmith, and Susan Griffin. And my and Gary partner, S- Gary Skakes. Yes, wonderful. Um Please do check out our uh, socials and websites to understand what we do, how we help brands, how we help businesses with their marketing needs, their content needs, their story needs. And please, please, please do check out the Story Conversations website, which is storyconversations.blog. Have I covered everything, Susan, or should I The only else? thing that you didn't mention was the importance of music in the <gasps> brand. <laughs> yeah. Um, I could talk. I could talk about it forever, but like he says, saying nothing. Sound stories. Uh, Thesoundstories.com. Yes, thesoundstories.com. Yes, marvelous. You find out more there. Is, if, well, we can hear more as we roll out. Absolutely. See you next time. Bye.